That's what makes us tough. We keep a coming. We're the people that live. They can't wipe us out. They can't lick us. The change has started, and the change in Detroit is real. We're back! Yeah! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Detroit, Michigan! Here, you can actually see what you do affect a great American city, and it's, it's hopefully historical comeback. Welcome into Opportunity Detroit. Hi, this is Paul W. Smith, and today we welcome Lisa Peterson, Vice President of Business Development, and Alice Cummings, Director of Business Development of Airspace Link. Ted Sherbinsky's back with the investor work of Midwest Fund. And then we wrap up with an interesting story about Shelby Holtzman, founder and designer of Forest Dweller Furniture. It's all about Opportunity Detroit. Detroit, Michigan. First up on Opportunity Detroit, something we probably take for granted and don't really think about a lot, but these people have been thinking about drones an awful lot. As we welcome Lisa Peterson, Vice President of Business Development, and Alice Cummings, Director of Business Development for Airspace Link. Lisa, you first. Tell me about yourself. Here today is also with me, Alice Cummings from our team, and she handles our industry relationships. Excellent. Hi, my name is Alice Cummings, and I handle our private partnerships with Airspace Link, uh, mostly our drone partners and our logistics operators and other people that are in the space for transportation and logistics. And I'm excited to be here with you guys. We are excited to talk about women and drones and our backgrounds. Um, leading a uh, male-dominated industry. Yeah, I, I, it's it's funny because I never even think about that, but I guess you're right. It's been male-dominated. And, Alice, you're a certified Part 107 pilot, uh, which I, I didn't even know that existed or what it means, but it's all a part of this whole idea of what you folks are doing. I guess now that we know a little bit more about each of you, how about uh, more about Airspace Link, Lisa? Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so we are a Detroit-based startup, and I understand, I think Michael Helander was on your show a while ago. We've made a lot of progress since his time on the show. We've raised $10 million in a Series A from Altos, Altos Ventures and Talis, one of the world's leaders in air traffic control. Uh, we're using the funding to hire more people and expand our capabilities and reach. And uh, just to recap what we do, we started out with our relationship with the FAA. We actually actually provide a digital mapping solution for recreational drone pilots and what you just heard, Part 107 commercial drone pilots. And uh, just to break it down so it's very simple, just like drivers need to understand speed limits on roads, truck drivers may need special permits, our application provides pilots Information like the altitude limits that they're allowed to fly at, and then when they're flying near an airport, they need to have an approval from the FAA so they can use our system now to get that approval within seconds. And and the real reason for that is that these drone operations can operate in harmony with manned aviation and not conflict with manned aviation. And it's really opening up a lot uh, more commercial use cases. We're seeing this in all types of verticals, utility inspections, telecommunication tower inspections, construction and survey mapping, 
And then, of course, transportation, which uh, we might want to dig in a little bit more uh, to today. And then we're also working with local, state, and governments. We realized uh, early on that they have a role to play in the safety of all of this. And again, just like drivers need local roads to get from point A to B, and they need to understand when they have to slow down near a school bus or a, a playground, uh, when to stop at intersections, this is going to be the same with drones. They need to understand if they're flying over a playground or flying near a hospital with a helipad and a medevac helicopter. So, so we're combining federal, state, and local rules so drone pilots understand literally the rules of these virtual highways. You know, it's something that most of us don't think about. We just see the drones. We hear about the activity. Uh, they've been like a toy for television news uh, crews doing special shots and all of that. But this has become so uh, valuable and important that we actually have these pilots that are being licensed and certified. And as you look into it, th- some of the things that are now coming clearly to us are the the savings, if you will, in pollution, the savings in in CO2 emissions, among other things. You're when you're using a drone, you're not using a truck. And not that there's anything wrong with trucks, and we already know what it's like to have a shortage of truck drivers, but my point is, as we move more toward uh, drones, we move farther away from fossil fuels and problems that they bring. Exactly. And then go ahead, Alice. Alice is working on a project right in Michigan right now, and we were recently awarded a grant fund from the Office of Future of Mobility and Electrification, and it does entail the deployment of what we call our new digital infrastructure to really allow these operations to scale and do exactly what you're saying, Paul, take congestion off the roads. So, Alice, I'll hand it over to you to share more. Thank you. Yeah, you're exactly right, Paul, and and of course, Lisa, thanks for uh, that introduction, but Part of our mission is really to look at the amount of traffic that's on our roads today with the industry and learn if there's more than, you know, 50% of our traffic that needs to, that's really carrying cargo-only movement, cargo-only deliveries, so like groceries or medical items, but something that wouldn't involve a passenger. And can we move some of that into the air and reduce that traffic, some of the traffic jams and potentially those CO2 emissions in our world? So we feel that there's a lot of use cases that fit that model. And just like Lisa was saying, we were awarded a grant in Michigan recently for the future of mobility and electrification, which is really to stand up a drone delivery network for medical items in southeast Michigan in order to see if we can move packages, small medical packages and items between healthcare facilities uh, to start to reduce some of those ground courier transport routes that are running routinely for blood deliveries or lab specimen deliveries or or other items that are essential for transplant or surgery and move them off of the roads and into the air. So we have, if we, um, in Michigan, we also started over a a couple months ago over the summer, we, we did an early event at the Lakes of Taylor golf course where we set up for demonstrations um, that were happening at the golf course during the course of the day uh, to deliver things like Gatorades and snacks and completely different use case, completely different scenario. Um, but at the end of the day, they were delivering to a special mailbox, a special customized drone mailbox to for these Gatorades and these snacks. 
And the purpose of this is to serve conveniences to the golf course uh, members and the players without dropping directly onto the course or having to disrupt their game. So you're seeing, you're seeing demonstrations of drones being used in society for uh, all sorts of different things from <laughs> golf course deliveries all the way up to medical. But this is happening in Southeast Michigan as we speak. And it's a exciting time for the industry to see that type of change. It is exciting. Uh, Lisa Peterson with us, Vice President of Business Development. Alice Cummings, Director of Business Development, Airspace Link. W- what would you say would be your most exciting projects that you're working on now in in uh, the Detroit area? Well, I think Alice definitely just m- named a few. Uh, but what we're looking for is really this next challenge that we're out to solve. And it's this new um digital and physical infrastructure that allow for traffic management of the, these lower altitude uh, drone applications. And they work on AI. There's no human in the loop. This is all autonomous. So we're working in partnership with the FAA industry and state and local governments to look at new ways to view this as infrastructure, especially as the Biden infrastructure (laughs) bill uh, is is being um, negotiated right now. Would this this be considered a part of that infrastructure in the in the infrastructure bill making its way, struggling its way through Congress? (laughs) So it's it's really fuzzy right now because we're talking about something along the lines of micro mobility, but it's in the air. And traditionally, FAA has played a role with manned aviation and the state and local departments of transportation focused on the ground. And so this is somewhere in between that. And so if we can start to think of these as actually helping uh, the DOTs locally meet their metrics of congestion reduction and CO2 emission reduction and serving underserved neighborhoods, equity, uh, we can look at how the DOTs would want to get involved in something like this because they're really offloading. They're helping their own metrics, their own performance metrics. And then the FAA is looking at this as a potentially rejuvenation of uh, local and regional airports even when we think about things like advanced air mobility and the bigger aircraft that are coming that will be drones and they will be autonomous one day, eventually moving people. You know, I, I would say, Lisa and Alice, for the average person, this has kind of snuck up on us. You clearly have been working on it for a long time, as a lot of people have been. But we've just get we're just getting over the novelty of drones. But you guys jumped into this uh, fully. What made you do that? First, you, Lisa. Well, what we like to look at is trends in the industry. So all of a sudden, rideshare came about and scooters came about and car share programs came about. That changed the way everybody moved around. And and also with the rise in e-commerce and Amazon, it's also changed the way we are getting our goods and services delivered. So we we forecasted, we looked at the past trends, and we saw, well, this is going to happen again all over with drones. Very different arena, though. It is highly regulated by the FAA right now. So there's just a lot of um, new things. We can take lessons learned from the past, having looked at these types of transportation technology trends, and try to apply them to the future. But it is a little bit uncertain right now. 
um, we uh, are writing the playbook as we go along, and we're getting better at it all the time. In the state of North Dakota, we're working on the rollout of what's called a Beyond Visual Line of Sight operational infrastructure, and the state has funded this program. And the goal is to achieve the goals that we said. They're more rural, they're not as congested, obviously, but they have not great road infrastructure. So getting medical supplies and pharmaceuticals to people uh, in an easier way than using our roads. Well, I'll tell you, you've proven to us on Opportunity Detroit uh, this day that it's more than the, it's, it's on the edge of it, but beyond the wild, wild west of, of this uh, this industry, if you will, with Airspace Link and doing a great job to, to the point, Alice, where you even became a certified Part 107 pilot. I still don't know what Part 107 pilot means, but I'm still going to congratulate you for achieving that. And, uh, and I'm going to thank you both for being here to talk about it on Opportunity Detroit. Lisa Peterson, Vice President of Business Development, and Alice Cummings, Director of Business Development for Airspace link. It's just the beginning. But you guys have been in it for a while, and we appreciate you sharing the information with us. Thank you very much, Paul, for the opportunity to be on your show. And we actually have three women pilots now, including myself. (laughs) Beautiful. Excellent. As we continue on Opportunity Detroit. Next up on Opportunity Detroit, Our next guest is an early-stage startup investor sharing insights and ideas from Detroit, being a first-check investor in over 70 startups worth $1.5 billion spanning 12 countries. He's moved to Detroit actually nearly a decade ago from Silicon Valley to help Dan Gilbert build Detroit's tech scene as a partner at Detroit Venture Partners. It's Ted Serbinski, investor of the Midwest Fund. Ted, welcome to Opportunity Detroit. Thanks for having me today. Excited to uh, be here and uh, talk about what's going on. Well, it's our pleasure, as uh, Ted, I'll tell our listeners previously, ran the Techstars Detroit Accelerator for mobility-focused uh, startups. And now with uh, other Techstar veterans, he's leading the Midwest Fund, seeking to ramp up venture investment for early-stage companies in core Midwest cities like our Detroit, including a billionaire Dan Gilbert's venture capital firm as limited partners uh, in the fund. So tell me about, first up, if you would, tell me about yourself and tell me about the Midwest Fund. Yeah, so I've spent uh, 20 years working with early stage technology startups. Uh, the, The first 10 years of my career, being an open source developer, building uh, websites for Sony, MTV, and others, and uh, built a website um, and startup that we actually sold to Lifetime Television um, quite a few years ago. And over the last 10 years, I kind of switched from the programming building of startups to investing in startups. So I've invested in over 70 startups, 12 different countries, um, all from right here in Detroit, and um, it's been really amazing to see what what has happened and what's possible being an early stage investor in Detroit, um, which 10 years ago wasn't a thing. You either were in San Francisco, maybe Boston or New York, but to be in Detroit was a, was a head scratcher. 
Well, here's uh, something uh, for all of us who are parents that we should get this point across to our kids who are out there now looking for jobs. Amazingly, Ted cold-called Dan Gilbert. It's got to be a better name for it because you kind of cold-emailed Dan <laughs> Dan Gilbert. Is there a term for that? Um, I don't know if there's a term, but uh, it's, I've been a big uh, proponent of um, if you don't ask, you don't know. Uh, the answer is always no. And so about 10 years ago, I was in San Francisco, just in my tiny little condo there, um, and I was kind of looking at Detroit startups. There was very little, maybe two or three results, but I saw that Detroit Venture Partners had just started. Uh, Dan Gilbert, Quicken Loans were behind it, Josh Link there as well. And so I just found an email and just said, hey, this is why you guys need to hire me. And I, two months later, I found myself in downtown Detroit thinking, what, what have I done? You know, what that says to me is a little insight into why Dan Gilbert is as successful as he is and why you, Ted Zerbinski, is as successful as you are. Over the last decade of being in Detroit, Ted has built an incredible Techstars mobility program, helped change the image of Detroit, where it's now recognized as a major tech hub, and your mobility portfolio is at $1.5 billion. In fact, Ted often says Detroit is the perfect place for a founder to get started. Why? I think why, because the this city of Detroit is this American iconic city, and it just it's built on people that, that build things. That's, that's our heritage, uh, movers and shakers the world but in Detroit it's it's still a smaller uh, smaller thing um, around here and so I think being here uh, allows you to kind of get through the noise much quicker and into the people and connect with the people that are really doing things building things whether in Detroit around the Midwest or, or throughout the world well I can't I can't say this to too many people the, the, the fact of the matter is Ted you you spent 10 years in Silicon Valley and 10 years in Detroit. Which have you liked better? So when I first moved to Detroit, the the first thing that hit me was just the lack of good food and good wine. Um, and this was, this was 10 years ago, so this is right. before Detroit went through the bankruptcy. There was still a lot going on. But now um, I was actually having a conversation with a, with a colleague. Um, he's actually in, in Europe. And he said, I'm, I'm looking at moving to the United States to uh, move my startup. Do you think I should go to Detroit? He's like, I don't want to go to San Francisco. And I said, he's like, do you think you're going to stay here? And I said, absolutely. Um, I said, for me, kind of my North Star is if you look at Detroit's population, it kind of peaked 1952, 53, um, and then was on a decline for the, until probably, I don't know, five, six years ago. And I said that that's what I look at. That opportunity is actually pretty clear. You can see what it was and where it is today. And that, that gap, it can, be, it can fill that gap. It can grow past that gap. Um, and I just said there's so much more opportunity around this region. And when you look at other cities around the U.S., there's a lot of uh, challenges. I mean, there's certainly challenges in Detroit, but I said there's much more opportunity here at scale um, and I said, that's, that's what excites me. And I said, there's a lot of advantages to being a startup 
tech CEO in Detroit um, beyond just the opportunity of the region. And and amid the pandemic, many investors flocked back to the coasts. You chose to stay here in Detroit. If I were a gambling man, I'd say it appears you're doubling down on Detroit. Is that true? Are you sticking around for the next 10 years? Yes, I'm actually very excited about the next 10 years. Um, I think the the way I kind of think of it in in my head is um, there's a lot of research out there for different startup communities that take time to build. Uh, Brad Feld, who's in Boulder, Colorado, said it takes about 20 years to really build a flourishing startup community. Um, One of his partners, Jason Mendelson, is actually from Detroit. And what they did with Denver, Boulder, it took about 20 years. And so in my head, the last 10 years across the Detroit startup scene, it was really slow. But over the last year, there's been an acceleration of capital raised, startups acquired. And so the, the next 10 years, I just see continued exponential growth there across Detroit um, and also across the greater Midwest as more and more individuals relocate back to home or, or looking to have families um, and get out of those uh, crowded cities. Ted Serbinski with us, investor of the Midwest Fund. And in fact, I'd like, Ted, if you would, to take a, a moment to tell us, in fact, take as much time as you want, to tell us about the Midwest Fund and high alpha innovation. How are they, how are they different from other venture programs that you've previously managed? Yeah, so with Techstars, um, actually, let me step back. When I was uh, with Detroit Venture Partners, um, the goal of that was, can we make a lot of noise to get Detroit on the radar, to find startups to invest in, to start to make connections with those um, funds all around the world? And it was it worked really well, just kind of all of a sudden Detroit being recognized from an early stage startup tech uh, perspective. And I left that to uh, help establish Techstars Detroit, which is a very early stage accelerator for startups. So going, um, investing in startups much earlier than a Detroit venture partners would. And over six years, invested in over 70 startups, 12 different countries. And one of the, the comments I would get frequently was, well, how many startups are you investing in, in Detroit or in Michigan? And I'd, I'd often remark, like, to me, that wasn't the metric. Um, the metric to me was how many new people are being exposed to the region. Um, the people here know what's going on, looking for investment. But what about all these new individuals? And just thinking of how things grow exponentially, um, kind of the, the telephone, <laughs> you talk to one person, they talk to another person, and then all of a sudden it's many, many more individuals. Um, and so I was kind of looked at that from an exposure point of view. But there always was that, could we invest more locally, whether Detroit, Michigan, or Midwest? And earlier this year, I launched the Midwest Fund um, with a handful of colleagues where we're actually spread out, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Cincinnati, being that first $50,000 of investment in early stage startups. And so in this case, being very explicit, we're only investing in what I kind of like to think of the lower, lower east side of the Midwest. Um, we're not going farther west in Chicago. Um, we're not going farther east in Pittsburgh. And kind of this 
poor part of the Midwest, but really investing first check, moving very quickly, being able to make investments in a week or two. Um, and it's great to have uh, Dan Gilbert on board with that and his team, um, one of the founders of Duo Security and other notable startup founders throughout the region. And that's great, but it's a, for me, that's a full-time hobby, um, long-term in play there. And so I'm also working with the group High Alpha Innovation, which is actually based out of Indianapolis, that is building startup studios with corporations and universities. And so this is yet another take on how do you create more startups, this one being a very deliberate, let's go instead of find something to invest in, let's go build something and make it a reality. Due to your success, you get a lot of people asking questions. How do we do this? What do you suggest? Uh, tell us, Ted Serbinski, Investor, Midwest Fund, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think the biggest thing with entrepreneurs, biggest piece of advice is uh, just get going. Um, I know it's <laughs> easier said than done, um, but I think I, I see a lot of folks kind of struggle with if we, we could do this, um, and in theory, if we get this money and we this happens and this, it's a really big business. Um, contrast that with individuals like, hey, I'm already making this, whatever this may be. Um, and there's actually a, a quote that really struck with me when I was in part of Dan Gilbert's group was Dan would often say, spreadsheets measure, they don't create. And it really resonated with me, especially early state ventures. You can put as many numbers as you want in a spreadsheet. You can make the PowerPoint look as great as possible. That's only measuring. It's not actually creating anything. You got to go out there and do the work. Um, and I think that that's a really great way to think about someone being entrepreneurial is stop measuring and start creating. Excellent advice. We appreciate it. Nice talking with you, Ted, and continued success. Thanks for having me. Ted Zerbinski, Investor, Midwest Fund, as we continue an Opportunity Detroit. Finally, on Opportunity Detroit, we welcome... Shelby Holtzman, the founder and designer of Forest Dweller Furniture. 33 years old, earned a degree in physical anthropology from the University of Michigan-Dearborn, a self-taught woodworker. Shelby also enjoys hiking, traveling, and camping. This sounds like it's a dating app that I'm talking about, but it's it's your it's the introduction I have for you. Shelby, welcome okay. to Opportunity Detroit. Well, Paul, thanks for having me. I was going to say it's quite the uh, quite the little bio there. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a nice. You've got a good publicist. Uh, your story began for Forest Dweller Furniture in 2014. Let's start right there. Tell us about it. It did. It did. It did. So we actually started uh, as, in 2014 as Long White Beard Furniture. Um, so we had a little bit of a rebranding this year. Uh, but we started making uh, solid wood furniture, custom designs, and selling them across the country, And uh, but really trying to focus here locally as well. And, I, 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 geez, just that name makes me want to ask, how did, it, how did it start off as long white beard furniture? 
That's a good question, isn't it? Uh, so we, when we started, we liked it. We felt it was uh, kind of a throwback to, you know, kind of these old-timey techniques and things like that that we were doing. But I will be honest and say it, uh, it was a little misleading over the years, mostly because we've always been a uh, female-led uh, woodshop and fabrication studio. So, you know, I am not the face you expect to see when you, we have the name Long White Beard. And I had plenty of customers over the years walk in, Definitely expecting to see an old man very grizzled and, you know, <laughs> with uh, years of wisdom. But but sure enough, it was me. So, uh, yeah, during the, you know, I think lots of businesses, lots of people had changes during the pandemic. And we kind of started to rethink what we had been doing and really wanting to bring uh, some things to the forefront that maybe we had lost over the years. And uh, and with that, we kind of decided to rebrand. So uh, we are now Forest Dweller Furniture. It's got a little bit more of a story. Uh, it's a little bit more... Uh, close to home for us. So, as as a forest dweller, close to home, or as a, the idea that you're committed to handcrafting artifacts for your home uh, that will withstand the test of time and last generations, which is what a certain subset or group of people are looking for. And I think until we found you, kind of hard to find. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in both ways, uh, the name itself. When we were looking to rebrand, I think. Uh, I had a lot of friends who wanted me to be, you know, Holtzman Woodshop and things like this, and it was definitely never my style, but uh, my last name actually means woodsman, and so as we were kind of looking into that, one of the synonyms we kept finding was forest dweller, and it, and it just felt like it fit. Uh, again, I'm, you know, an avid outdoors person, and, and working with wood is, is different than that, but at the same time, you know, very in touch, working with these kind of organic materials and uh, and yeah, just liking to, we really like to make uh, solid, solidly built, uh, solid wood furniture that, you know, does last t- the test of time and, you know, and can be passed on in, you know, some modern designs, but also in some classics. Yeah, well, you'd have to say this was uh, predetermined with your birth, with the family name of Holtzman, as you point out, derived from the old Germanic word Holtz, meaning forest. So that was, uh, this might have been. This might have been fate, for goodness sakes, predetermined for you, Shelby. And did you always know this is what you wanted to do and work with? Uh, you know, I didn't. I, uh, I went to school for uh, anthropology. I was looking at teaching for a while, and uh, I had started kind of in my, my own time kind of developing into these more, I guess, creative hobbies. I've always liked working with my hands. And I had been making things for family and friends for a few years when I graduated school, and uh, and, you know, really just decided to kind of give it a go and see if this is something we could do. So seven years now, I think we've been pretty successful, and we've definitely expanded our reach and uh, expanded the things that we are able to provide, and uh, we're very, you know, proud of our quality and our craftsmanship at this point. I am told uh, Shelby Holtzman with us, founder and designer, Forest Dweller Furniture, that you create heirloom-quality furniture that is uniquely handcrafted, uh, can you tell us what kind of furniture? What do you make? Uh, so we make all sorts of stuff. We make uh, we make a lot of dining room tables at this point. We make a lot of bedroom sets. Um, we have a small metal shop, so we do a lot of solid wood furniture. We also fabricate our own brackets and bases and things like that when we have uh, when we use integrate metal into it. Um, we work on a lot of live edge furniture at this point, which is kind of a unique twist and definitely um, brings out. The, the different beauties that you can find within trees and within wood. 
Um, and yeah, we do, we have a standard line. We do a lot of shelving and things like that, but we also take on a lot of custom projects to, you know, make something fit just right in your space or find something you, you know, have been looking for and unable to find. I picture substantial, uh, furniture made from beautiful wood with the natural beauty shining through. That's what I picture. Well, we make a lot of things. I was going to say a lot of times the live edge stuff and solid wood stuff can get a little bit um, cottagey or a little rustic and things like that. We do uh, we do tend to have a very modern aesthetic and, and kind of good lines and clean lines. Um, but, yeah, it's a lot of, you know, you get an inch and a half thick top of solid wood. It, it can withstand the time. It can afford to be beat up a little bit and still have a lot of character and, again, be something you can be proud to pass on or, or just keep for a long time. Well, but what comes through is your great admiration of the forest and of our earth. I think that goes, well, it doesn't go without saying because I just said it, but you know what I'm saying. I sure do. I sure do. You know, a lot of things, uh, a lot of our consumerism at this point is uh, is very fast and very, you know, what's in season and what's in style. And, uh, and I think we've started to realize that that's not very sustainable um, that, you know, there's there's a point in having things that are built to last and, and not just built for the season. It, it might be nice to have, um, you know, new things twice a year, but we do know that that ends in, up in landfills and, and you know, uh, IKEA furniture and things like that. You can't move from place to place. You know, these things really do degrade very quickly over time. Um, so it's been nice to us that if we're going to, you know, go through the process of harvesting this wood, and, you know, turning it into something that it is going to be substantial in and of itself. And again, something worthy to be passed on. Uh, we're speaking with Shelby Holtzman, founder and designer of Forest Dweller Furniture. We do source all that wood locally um, from, you know, mills in the city of Detroit that have been here for almost 100 years. Um, some of our stuff, our live edge designs, for example, we work with a couple of local companies that do, uh, they take down urban trees. So a lot of times you can actually trace that tree back to the neighborhood or back to the, you know, the city that it was from um, when people are really looking to have that connection. Um, not very often, but we have actually over the years made uh, a couple of pieces, a bedroom set, I believe, and then a dining room table that was from wood that the families had actually had for a long time uh, stored on their property or from a tree that had gone down that we were really looking forward to utilizing. So that definitely has a special aspect to it. Where are you actually located now? We are in Troy. We're at uh, pretty much corner of John R. and Maple. We had been in Ferndale for about four years, and we just moved in April. Um, so that has allowed us. We have kind of more of an upfront showroom now, so people are able to, you know, come by by appointment and see, you know, our offerings and talk about details and things like that. Um, and we have a bigger workspace, so we're able to take on more projects, um, again, be able to, to host people, and we're looking forward to offering workshops and things like that in the new year. So uh, along with the obvious support by people buying furniture from you, are there other ways our listeners can support your business? Absolutely. We have, uh, so we do have a brand new website. You can find us at uh, forestwellerfurniture.com. Um, and obviously we're on all of the social medias. So, um, Feel free to, you know, check us out. And if it's, you know, to your liking, give us a like, give us a follow, give us a share, um, especially going into the holidays. You know, I always encourage people to check with their local businesses and see who they can support uh, right here at home. Uh, and, you know, we do have, you know, the normal wood shop rapport of uh, cutting boards and, and thick 
things like that. Uh, so hopefully we have some things that we can offer for the holidays. Well, it sounds wonderful. It also sounds like there's a tremendous uh, opportunity to have some custom furniture made. Um, if you're, if you have something in mind, they can present their ideas to you, and you, as the artisan, can turn it into reality. Absolutely, we do things, you know, straight full custom all the time. Um, but even past that, if you know, if there's a specific vanity you've been looking for and you can't quite find one to fit, you know, the specific nook you have or the specific space or the specific depth, we can be of help with that. Um, you know, just altering things that you already are really hopeful for, but wanting, again, to be made fully out of quality wood, quality material, quality craftsmanship, um, and also specifically, you know, made to fit your space. Shelby, do you have a favorite wood or a wood that's in favor more so than any other right now? You know, uh, the answer to both of those might be walnut. Um, we've seen definitely a trend of people choosing that over over the last few years. Um, we joke sometimes that it's our own fault because when you walk into our showroom, most of what we've made is in walnut. So even when people come in looking for oak or maple or cherry, they end up a lot of times they end up leaving going with walnut. Um, huh. It's our it's a very lovely wood. It's uh, kind of our darkest domestic wood. Um, so it kind of brings that elegance, but when, especially with the live edge stuff, you end up getting a lot of more, a lot more color and character than you would imagine. So a lot of times it has, you know, some purples and greens and things like that in there that, um, are just quite stunning. Walnut. That's interesting. I probably would have come in looking for cherry wood and maybe I'd be one of those people who came in looking for cherry or oak or something else and ended up with walnut too. I look forward to seeing your uh, your location there uh, in Troy and online at forestdwellerfurniture.com forestdwellerfurniture.com that's also where you'll find Shelby Holtzman founder and designer at Forest Dweller Furniture thanks for joining us on Opportunity Detroit absolutely Paul I appreciate you having me our pleasure indeed and that's going to do it for the show for today As I continue to fight this cold, don't worry, it cannot be transmitted from this microphone to your speaker. That's the good news. That's about all the good news I can say about this cold. Meanwhile, I thank Lisa Peterson, Vice President of Business Development, and Alice Cummings, Director of Business Development at Airspace Link. Thanks to Ted Serbinski, the investor of the Midwest Fund, and to Shelby Holtzman, founder and designer of Forest Dweller Furniture. And a very special thank you to you for joining us here on Opportunity Detroit, talking to the people who matter in Detroit and who care about Detroit and take advantage of the opportunities. I'll talk to you in the morning. Regards, Paul W. Smith.